If you like listening to Inglorious Trexperts, you'll love watching us. Really? How? I guess you will. I guess you will. But how, how can one do that, Mark? Now you can download the free Electric Now app featuring video podcasts of The Inglorious Trexperts, The 430 Movie, Best Movies Never Made, and tons of free TV, movies, and more. You're saying it's so all, all free? All free? I'm saying it's free. 100% no free. Page, 100%. There's no Patreon. There's no premium fees. There's no electronic frontier. Well, there's no all excuse there is, not to get it then. There's no excuse not to. That's what I'm saying. So download the Electric Now app today and start watching us right now. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital, wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Looks good in there, Roger. BCS on, switch is on. Okay, Victor. Landing rocket arm switch is on. Here comes the Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And welcome back to the Trexperts Inglorious Holiday Specials. It's beginning to feel a lot like a new year, and it couldn't have come soon enough. And I'm thrilled <laughs> as we count down the 101 greatest sci-fi and fantasy TV episodes of all time. We have two of our favorite guests back to help us navigate these treacherous waters. Who am I talking about? Of course, I'm talking about uh, writer, uh, producer, uh, all around great guy, Ashley Edward Miller. Ashley, welcome back. Thank you. I am shaken, but not stirred. And back from the Burnett work, they loaned him out to us again. It's like the old studio system. They, <laughs> they loaned him to another studio. And we're thrilled to have him. There's no one who is more insightful uh, commentary about television and pop culture today than Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Welcome back, Rob. Well, thank you. You know, the Rapids, when you say that the rough waters, I can't help but think high on the Rapids, it tossed my tiny raft a thousand feet below, Mark, to land of the lost. Now, will land of the lost make it on this countdown? We'll find out. Because a lot of people talk about the fact that you know, with all those great people like David Gerald and DC Fontana, although it was kids television, there was a lot of great science fiction in those there stories. Was. Yeah. Uh, when the walls fell. 
Yeah. Thank you. Chaka? Chaka. Chaka when the walls fell. I, I, I would rather watch that than Darmok. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I've, 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 I've never made a secret of the fact that I'm not a huge Darmok fan, so uh, I definitely would be happy to watch Chaka instead. Amen. I watched Darmok more hungover than I have ever been in my entire life, having spent the night in jail. It's a great story, but I won't tell it here. <laughs> well, in part one, we, uh, we counted down from episode 101 through episode 74. You may recall in episode two, we counted down episodes 50. No, we haven't gotten. Yeah, we, we have <laughs> episode 75 to episode 49. Today, we'll be resuming the countdown. Episode 51, actually. With, yes. epi with episode 50. Yes, right. Episode, <laughs> episode 51. Uh, today, we'll be resuming the countdown with episode 50 taking us all the way to 26. And in our final part of this never-ending countdown, we will finally reveal the top 25. But until we do that, we got to reveal the, the 25 that preceded it. And I know you're on pins and needles, so let's not wait. Let's get straight to number 50, Darren Tochman. Yes. Well, 50 is, uh, uh, I think it's the, it, no, it's not the first uh, time that uh, this show was uh, mentioned in our list. No, this number is from two. Star Trek Voyager, and it's the first Star Trek Voyager caretaker. We're alone in an uncharted part of the galaxy. We've already made some friends here and some enemies. We have no idea of the dangers we're going to face. But one thing is clear. Both crews are going to have to work together if we're to survive. That's why Commander Chakotay and I have agreed that this should be one crew, a Starfleet crew. And as the only Starfleet vessel assigned to the Delta Quadrant, we'll continue to follow our directive to seek out new worlds and explore space. But our primary goal is clear. Even at maximum speeds, it would take 75 years to reach the Federation. But I'm not willing to settle for that. There's another entity like the caretaker out there somewhere who has the ability to get us there a lot faster. We'll be looking for her. And we'll be looking for wormholes spatial rifts, or new technologies to help us. Somewhere along this journey, we'll find a way back. Mr. Paris, set a course for home. Aye, Captain. This is the one that started it all. Uh, and it it uh, it actually set it up to uh, be very much like uh, another show that we talked about, Lost in Space, actually, um, where you know we have uh, our our standard crew of uh, goodies that are pursuing a another crew of uh, we don't really know what they are actually. Unfortunately, the Maquis wasn't really established as well as I think that they wanted to in terms of what they wanted and what their goals were. Um, but uh, so there's a pursuit across space and uh, they go into uh, a uh, uh, really crazy and expensive part of space called the Badlands. And uh, they are yanked 
<clears throat> Yanked. Uh, by, uh, by an unknown force across the universe. Well, across the galaxy, certainly. Into the Delta Quadrant. Not to be confused with the Delta House, which is from Animal House. But uh, the uh, Delta Quadrant, which is very far, even for warp drive capabilities. So the, uh, uh, the crews are forced to live together and push on. And do they try and find their way back home? Sort of. Yeah, I guess. In a meandering kind of way. But they also have to deal with the uh, stuff that happens to them on the way back. And uh, that is the beginning of Star Trek Voyager. And I think it, it deserves a, a place on this list because they were trying to do something new and something old at the same time. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, the famous uh, uh, casting of, uh, of uh, Captain Janeway uh, that went awry after only four days. Uh, and when they brought in Kate Mulgrew, she uh, had to do things really quickly and uh, settle into her character uh, immediately. And I think she did an amazing job after Genevieve Bougeau. Uh, well, I think uh, it's really interesting you bring that up because I think the triumph of Caretaker is that it's as good as it is, given all the problems it had. Yeah. You know, the casting of Genevieve Bougeau, they were shooting for days. Uh, it didn't work out. She quit. They, 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 they then cast quickly Kate Mulgrew. Then... Um, Famously, Carrie McCluggage, they had a Paramount, didn't like her hair. So then they had to reshoot a bunch of days with Kate yeah. Mulgrew, going back to one of their most expensive locations, the uh, L.A. Convention Center. So um, it, it's really amazing that this pilot is as good as it is. I think that has a lot to do with director Rick Colby, mm -hmm. uh, who did a really wonderful job. Uh, it's it's well shot. It, it it continues to be, I think, obviously based on our countdown, one of the best episodes of the series. And I think you rarely find that with Star Trek pilots. No, I think it's a, I think it's a really great pilot. And I, you know, I I remember watching it thinking, wow, this is really good. I mean, I really liked Emissary, the pilot for Deep Space Nine, but I think I might have liked Caretaker even better. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would go quite that far, but I really dug Caretaker, and I thought it was a great start to Voyager. I mean, I just think the great tragedy of Voyager is that it never quite delivered on the promise of Caretaker, either yeah. in terms of the, the story of the show or Captain Janeway, who I thought was kind of cool and badass, like, in those first yeah. couple episodes. Yeah, and then yeah. she short, sort of wasn't. Yeah, and then she sort of reason. wasn't. She started making promises she wasn't ready to keep. Yeah. Well, I think I know. that, you know, obviously Deep Space Nine, uh, which is a show we all love, um, you know, sort of hurt Voyager in a sense that its failure to to be a hit in, in the, you know, the next generation vein, uh, you know, made them very conservative when it came to Voyager in terms of how they depicted conflict, in terms of how they chose to tell the stories. And it was a very risk averse show. And I think that's why it's not until very late in the series run that the show starts to really find itself and be more successful. But uh, those early days, it's, it's, it's very much, you know, trying to be Star Trek, the next generation of light, but uh, caretaker is a lot of fun. And it also, I think captures the fun of the original series. They yeah, find absolutely. themselves in a farmhouse and there's this dying alien cloud or energy field. Yeah. Uh, it it uh, definitely uh, feels like, like a Dorothy Fontana story, actually. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which I think is, is something we've all responded to a lot in that pilot. Absolutely. So we move on in back in time, or at least back in our list 
to number 49 and Mark Alden. Well, number 49, uh, you know, uh, interesting. Twilight Zone so far has really dominated our countdown. And uh, Twilight Zone makes its uh, uh, recurrence again, not surprisingly, with another classic episode, Eye of the Beholder. Now we have done all we could do. If we've been successful, well and good, there are no problems. But if, on the other hand, this final treatment has not achieved the desired result, please remember, Miss Tyler, that you can still live a long and fruitful life among people of your own kind. All right, Miss Tyler. Here comes the last of it. I wish you every good luck. change at all. doesn't require a big plot synopsis you're probably all familiar with it it's the one where a woman who has been apparently horribly disfigured um uh, wakes up in a hospital she's desperate for plastic surgery and of course in the denouement we realize that in fact she is beautiful it is all the doctors and everyone on this planet earth or alternate world that is ugly and horrendous and uh and it that- is and that the episode probably should have been called Nose of the Beholder. Yeah. <laughs> and a beautiful uh, Frank Tuttle uh, uh, makeup, I believe. Uh, I, no. I'm not sure. No. It, I'm not sure. But uh, William Tuttle? William Tuttle, yes. Captain Tuttle? Uh, <laughs> <No>. Mr. Tuttle? <laughs> King Tuttle? Um, so anyway, the thing about this episode is it not only works as a wonderful allegory metaphor uh, you know, going straight to the axiom that eye is in the, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but it is brilliantly shot because yeah. for a good 20 minutes, you have to hide the ball. So it's shot in shadow. It's shot like a, a film noir because you can't give the game away that uh, all these doctors and nurses are these, well, I would say ugly, but maybe, you know, that's in the eye of the beholder, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a really beautifully shot and uh, uh, executed episode um, with a fantastic Twilight Zone payoff. And, and yeah, it's it's definitely fun. I, I would have to say that it's not one of the most subtle ones. It's not one of the ones that you're not guessing about before it happens. No, it's very in your face. Yeah, liter- literally, but I'm pumped. Thank you. Uh, when we did the, uh, the, the, the crappy, I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? The, the UPN, when I said crappy, I meant yeah, UPN. Yeah, you, you worked right. on the UPN Twilight Zone, right? Yes, exactly. This was one that we talked about trying to remake. Um, and then I think we like had a spasm of good sense and decided that that would just be a horrible fucking idea. So we didn't. 
Um, but it's because it's uh, number one. I don't. I think you can only get away with this episode once. Pretty um, much, yeah. You know exactly. It's like once you've done it, you've done it. Like it's and it's and it's perfectly effective and great. The story is told. There's nothing else to say. And I, and I think that's actually like a, a my way of recommending. Although there is another way you could have done it. You could have had uh, all the doctors and nurses have the left side of their face black. And, and the right. Everybody else was black but, on the other side and white on this side. And I they have, could have let that be their last battlefield. I have that to say, awesome. though, uh, you know, I started watching The Twilight Zone concurrently when I started watching Star Trek around being like when I was five or six. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the most shocking uh, surprising, indelible things I my young mind had to grapple with this, right. and and uh, because the visceral, it, the reveal was so incredible to my young mind that it really opened my mind to the possibilities of imagination and what what I was going to see. And I felt I I'll, I'll never forget when I watched this the first time. I thought it was something that I shouldn't have seen. I thought mm-hmm. I I saw something that I was supposed to be a little older. It was and, forbidden. Yes, and mm-hmm. and the the makeups are simple, but the distortion of the human face is so effective, yeah. and it haunted. I mean, I must have had nightmares about this for years, and I, oh, it's so good. I completely agree, um, and I think the Twilight Zone now, you know, sixty years later, so many of these are so well known that the the payoffs are, are such a part, an indelible part of pop culture that they they don't have the impact they once did because right. even people who've seen haven't seen the episodes may know a lot of uh you know how they pay off because they've been referenced in so many other shows um but yeah. it's an absolutely great uh great um great episode of a great series and i'm sure we'll be seeing twilight zone again which brings us to a number 48 and a twilight zone inspired television series uh mm-hmm. rob burnett well, of course, this uh, is from Black Mirror, the episode San Junipero, one of the most emotional episodes of Black Mirror. You know, we all carry our Black Mirrors with us everywhere we go. They tell me three months. It's spread basically everywhere. They've said three months before, six months ago. So, you know, what do they know? doesn't even taste of anything. But so you'll stay here after? No. When I'm done, I am done. But that's great. I mean, why? Richard, that's... My husband's name was Richard. He died just two years ago. So we had the opportunity to stay in San Junipero, Passover. Didn't take it. Didn't want to take it. Why wouldn't anyone take it? He had his viewpoint. There were things he believed and things he didn't believe in, and this place was one of them. Wouldn't even visit. Take the trial run. Shit. I didn't know if I wanted to try it, but... I mean... 
Jesus, without this place, I never would have met someone like you. Yeah, you could have. No, I wouldn't. We could have met outside all this. No. You would not have got me at all. I love this show. Charlie Brooker created it. He also wrote this episode. And this episode deals with, at first, you don't really quite get it, but it deals with a virtual world that is inhabited by the elderly and even the elderly that have died. Mm -hmm. And they get to live forever in this idyllic beachfront community. And it's about this relationship between two women. And it is a beautiful romance. It is a beautiful story. It's incredibly moving. And I really think it does a really credible job of, of portraying what might be our futures, you know, where you, you maybe could download your consciousness into a mainframe and live out your life uh, listening to 80s music like they do in this. L little Belinda Carlisle, little, little Robbie Neville, One Hit Wonder, Selavi. Uh, uh, and it is, it, it's just a really emotional, very moving episode of this show. And uh, I think it's Black Mirror is one of the most effective anthologies that's ever been on TV behind the Twilight Zone. And it really is a product of the modern era. And a lot of the, um, the, the stories, I mean, they've been making Black Mirror for almost a decade now. And uh, Netflix sort of took it over and financed more episodes. But what a wonderful, wonderful it's a great science fiction story and then it's just a great moving love story it's interesting yeah. there's a comedic take on that which is a series that almost made our just missed our top 101 right. which of course is upload on amazon which has a similar premise um but uh yeah i'm not i'm not surprised to see black uh, mirror uh finally making an appearance on our list let so me good. just tell you making an anthology show is super hard um, because the, the thing that we take for granted, those of us who kind of work in the industry, uh, is we have characters we know, we have home sets we understand, we have stories we know how to tell. And when you're writing an anthology show, producing an anthology show, it's like all of that goes out the window, right? It's like, it's, it's more difficult to produce. It's more difficult to write. Like there is no net. You have to be um, way more efficient. It, yeah, it, it's it's just it's hard, guys. And and the fact that Black Mirror is is so effective and so consistent um, is is to me in itself like enough to land. It, just throw a dart at a list of episodes and like and throw it on this list. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like the dog standing up on his hind legs. It's not how long he's up there; it's that he does it at all. But like, but Black Mirror like gets up on his hind legs and dances and break dances it moonwalks it's crazy it's, you know i think uh, it's great. one of the things though like you were saying like if you're doing the twilight zone that's such a broad canvas whereas black mirror kind of has the same premise which is you know this modern technological age and you're coming at that idea from many different ways but it all comes down to how have we been affected by the technology that we're using so mm -hmm. I think with Black Mirror, you get more, every episode's almost like a movie unto itself as opposed to a story, you know, a single, mm -hmm. a small. And so, uh, because I think it's very effective. I love, I just love Black Mirror. Right. Well, yeah. that brings us to numbers 47. Uh, once again, uh, coming, uh, making an appearance on the list. Uh, it's the Clone Wars. Ashley, tell us what's next. Number 47. 
Number 47 is the first episode of a, of a four-part uh, sequence mm. on the Clone Wars, I believe from its, its fourth season. And really, I'm nominating that entire four-part yeah, yeah. um, episode arc, uh, The Darkness on Umbara. Treason, then. Surrender, General. You're committing mutiny, Captain. Explain your actions. My actions? For ordering your troops against one another. Oh, that. I'm surprised you were able to figure it out for a clone. Surrender, General. You're outnumbered. Dare to attack a Jedi! It, it, it's great, by the way. Number one, that's why it's on the list. Um, but number two, the reason why it's great, the reason why I, I nominate this above all other episodes of The Clone Wars is really very simple. Um, it comes down to one guy, D. Bradley Baker. The premise of Darkness and Umbara is there is a, uh, a rogue... Jedi general who is in command of our favorite clones. And, and by the way, for my money on the Clone Wars, Anakin, awesome, and the Clone Wars, not in the prequels. Ahsoka, great. Obi-Wan Kenobi, great. Yoda, great. Mace Windu, great. But the heart and soul of that show was the clones. And the clones are never tested in the way that they are in this, this four-part series um, with a, a, a Jedi who hates them and really wants to see them fail uh, and wants to see them die, who pits them against each other in, in all of the worst possible ways. And what's astonishing about it is D. Bradley Baker plays all of these clones. He plays all of the soldiers. Imagine one actor playing every character in Full Metal Jacket and you are able to track which character is which. Now, I've had the, the pleasure and the honor of, of working uh, with, with Dee Baker. Um, it, it literally, just the other day, you know, it was my wife said, honey, what's in your schedule today? I said, for two hours, I'm gonna listen to Dee Baker make animal noises. Okay, but he does so much more than make animal noises. He creates these characters, all of whom have to sound the same. They all have the same voice. Spoiler alert, that's not Dee Baker's voice. This man is so talented and he brings like such pathos to this show. He brings such depth to these characters. It's really an achievement that I think hasn't been properly recognized. Um, and, and honestly, for those performances alone, the darkness on Umbara is worth your valuable time and more. I think it's akin to what Tatiana Maslany pulled off in uh, Orphan Black, which hasn't made our list yet, um, but it might. Um, but, uh, you know, where she was just playing all these characters. He gave, even though he's the voice of every clone, he gave each clone their own personality, whether it's Cody or, you know, whether 
you know, fives or hard K's or wrecks. Yeah. Or any of them. And uh, it's really an extraordinary performance. And, uh, you know, I think people dismiss it because it's animation, but it is some of the best acting that we've seen in a sci-fi TV show. For sure. Okay. That was the clone wars and making its second appearance on our list. Now that brings us to to number 46, 46. My goodness. Once again, returning to the countdown, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, once more with feeling. Last night, you know, did anybody um, burst into song? Life's a show, and we all play our parts, and you can sing along. Showtime. you wanted me to stay away from you. Isn't that what you say? Spike sing a little song? See, okay, that was disturbing. This is the event people will be talking about all November long. The musical. And of course, need I say more? The musical episode. This was an incredible accomplishment uh, by uh, the composer Christoph Beck, but more more than that, uh, by Joss Whedon, um, who wrote the songs and the lyrics and the music. And it's just an extraordinary, entertaining story. But, you know, what happens is the musical episode has become a staple now of television. But generally, it doesn't have anything to say. What is so amazing about Once More with Feeling is not only is it uh, wonderfully entertaining with its singing and dancing, but it advances the story of that season. In fact, one of the most important um, revelations of, of season six is the fact that Buffy was ripped out of heaven. And this this is revealed in the musical episode. Mm-hmm. We find out why Buffy has been so um, morose for these last couple of episodes. Maybe it's because she's on UPN. We don't know. She right. missed Fox. But instead, it, she, she, it really is because she was ripped out of heaven. And it's extraordinary. Hit in Battle uh, is a dancing demon. It's fantastic. Um, most of the cast is wonderful with their singing. I mean, there was an album that was released of the songs. The songs are great. There are a, a bunch of terrific numbers. It's really a spectacular uh, episode. And this is before it became de rigueur mm. for genre shows to do their quote unquote musical episode. And it is one of the great hours of Buffy. And yeah, uh, we did a musical episode. on Fringe and it kind of blew. Although the audience liked it. It didn't Where do we go opinion, have anything to say from here? The battle's done and we kind of won and we'll shed our victory tear. Tell me, where do we go? Where do we go from, from here. here. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I still remember break, that. That song is you, great. You didn't break out the guitar and say, let me rest in peace. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's so many great. And there's the whole Willow Amber uh, love story. That's just, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, just just wonderful. And they have a great uh, song together, and and each song is uh, a different theme, like a '50s pillow talk, Rock Hudson, Doris Day song between uh, Xander 
and um, Emma Caulfield, and uh, each number is different. Then there's a big rock and roll, you know, uh, you know, a, you know, hard guitar uh, with Spike, and and uh, and of course um, uh, Giles, who was um, a staple of British theater, musical theater. Uh, he was in Chess, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Did uh, uh, does a, a, a wonderful song. Uh, as, as well. It's just so full of great, great moments. And by the way, I have to say, this has nothing to do with this countdown, but uh, everybody loves Giles and Anthony Head. If you have not seen Ted Lasso on Apple Plus, you so owe it good. to yourself. It's so good. And he is so lonesome. You're like, no, how can this be Giles? We loved in Buffy. He's such an ass in uh, Ted Lasso. And if you think, you know, I'm not paying for Apple Plus. It's $4.99. Forgo that cup of coffee or buy another Apple product and get it for free because <laughs> it's really it. worth it. It's it's so good. It's so good. Okay. That's all I have to say about that. All I got to say about that. And that, of course, brings us to our next episode, mm. which is number 45. Once again, returning to Countdown, The Next Generation. Ashley, tell us what it is. At number 45... There are four lights. Uh, Chain of Command parts one and done. You can live out your life in misery held here, subject to my whims. Or you can live in comfort with good food and warm clothing, women as you desire them, allowed to pursue your studies of philosophy and history. I would enjoy debating with you. You have a keen mind up to you a life of ease of reflection and intellectual challenge or this what must i do nothing really tell me how many lights you see How many? How many lights? This is your last chance. The guard's coming. Don't be a stubborn fool. How many? You told me he would be ready to go. We had some unfinished business. Get him cleaned up. A ship is waiting to take him back to the Enterprise. Captain Picard. If you'll go with the guards, they'll take care of you. talk about this episode they talk about the performance of patrick stewart they talk about the performance of david warner they talk about the the amazing drama between these two characters david warner playing gull madred a cardassian interrogator trying to break captain picard's will and captain picard's just his his defiance but also his humanity his vulnerability we see that he's not superhuman he is human um, and he he represents the best of what we can be. 
but that's not why I'm recommending this episode. Why, Ashley? I want to know why. He's a big darkroom fan. Yeah, it's because I'm a darkroom <laughs> fan because Ronnie Cox is back. Look, man, if Captain Picard had had a slightly worse turn of events in Chain of Command and we had been left with Captain Jellico oh, in yeah. command of the USS Enterprise, that show would have still been badass because Captain Jellico kicks ass. He's awesome. He like he brings real conflict to the bridge. Like it is him. It, it, you can argue with him, you know, but it's you cannot dismiss him. He's competent. He's not just a martinet. Uh, he is smart. You know, he is man enough to admit when like somebody else is right and he might be wrong. But by God, you had better be able to prove it. And you had also better get it done. Right. Like, get it done. I love get it done. I mean, come on. I would have followed Ronnie Cox, Captain Jellico into H.E. double fucking hockey sticks. Come on. So good. You know, like, when you're... when you when you watch this episode now, Chain of Command is my favorite next generation two parter more than mm. best of both worlds. And when you watch this now, you know, Riker and, and Jellico have a, a, this conversation where Riker's like, there's no joy in what you do. And it really seems like the youth that we have today, like the the Rikers kind of this namby pamby. Well, you what you're asking is too much. It's too hard. And Jellico's there to put the ship on a war footing, you know. And and, right. and and they could be going to war. And and Rikers talking about the joy and how you're going to inspire people. They're not exploring here. I'm a wartime yeah. captain. I've come here to do a job, and we're going to do the job my way. And and I love the fact that Riker is wrong. You know, yeah. when you're watching this episode, one of our main characters that we're supposed to love is just flat out wrong. And at the end, you know, the audience, you're you're left with these mixed feelings about Jellico, but you come away going, hey, he was right because you he don't want to dislike our characters, but he was correct. Well, it's so funny. Go ahead. Interesting. Interestingly enough, the uh, mirror universe Captain Jellico is actually quite a mild and nice guy. <laughs> he really is. Like, we talked like I think when we were talking to Elizabeth Dennehy yeah. for like the for the, the Comic Con episode, I think we briefly brought up like the the sort of like the the Star Trek the Next Generation fantasy draft, like where you had a crew of like Captain Jellico and Commander Shelby and Ensign yeah. Rowe. I mean, how amazing would that show be? Yeah. I mean, I would watch every episode. Why I mean, do we do watch- that as the fantasy draft? Yeah. You know, yeah we I should might. do a show on. We should do hmm. a show on the Star Trek spinoffs that should be done. Yes. Right. You know, now that every week there's a new Star Trek spinoff, uh, um, we should we should do an episode of the Star Trek spinoffs that we want as opposed to the Star Trek spinoffs also, we don't I, want. I did want to mention that that Patrick Stewart told me that in, when he was Name coming up him. as an actor, one of the things that he admired, one of the, the people that he admired most was David Warner because of David Warner's portrayal of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. on the British stage and that he he was in awe of this performance and that Rick Berman came to him and said, hey, guess who's going to be on this episode? One of your fellow Brits. And he couldn't believe that he was going to act opposite David Warner. Who portrayed Jack the Ripper well, in Time After Well, time. And, and, and not only that, I mean, Rob will tell you, you know, David Warner came to one of the screenings of Free Enterprise. He was actually very complimentary about it. That was very exciting when he came yeah. Uh, he was friends with one of the other producers. And of course, you know, Rob and I were in awe of the fact it was David Warner from Time Bandits, among other things. Uh, but, you know, uh, I have to say, 
you know, my opinion of a chain of command, you know, when I watched it 30 years ago, I think I would have been much more inclined to feel the way Riker felt and, and, and watching it more recently, I was completely enjoying watching Ronnie Cox, uh, uh, you know, basically talk down to Troy. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, yeah. thanks for bringing this to my attention. Are you going to do anything about it? No. <laughs> <laughs> he made her put on a uniform. It's great. It's yep. great. It's great. I mean, it is a military ship, theoretically. So um, it, it's uh, and, and particularly when we see, you know, in other Star Trek shows, uh, people cry in every episode and, uh, you know, um, and, 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 and apparently having to, you know, constantly be making decisions, you know, takes 12 people to make a decision. It, it's really nice to see somebody who's kind of decisive and in charge. And um, uh, it, it, that episode really holds up. And of course, that's the first part. Then the second part is, you know, a sort of not that uh, it, it's telling you anything you don't know, but it's a stunning indictment of torture when yeah. you, uh, you know, and this is long before 9-11, uh, when you see, you know, Patrick Stewart being tortured by the Cardassians and making a very important point that everyone breaks eventually, you know, you know, because we've seen basically these kinds, of, oh, well, if you're heroic, uh, you know, you won't give in the torture. And, you know, basically Amnesty International worked very closely with them, you know, to make the case and no, no, um, you know, eventually everyone's going to break. And that's what's so amazing about that ending where he says, you know, you know, by the end, you know, I was, I would have told him anything. I would have told him. Yeah, exactly. For example, if they had shown him episode after episode of some hypothetical, not great Star Trek show, eventually he would have broken. He would have told them anything. And that's basically a bottle show. The second one and uh, it just could show like the drumhead chain of command mm-hmm. part two. You don't need a huge budget and a ton of people running around blowing things up to tell a great story. Hmm. Well, you do if you have a great story to tell. Yeah. Well, well said. <laughs> there you go. Well, and on that note, thank you, Ashley, for, um, uh, well, Rob, for, for, uh, no, Ashley, for oh, telling us about chain of command, which, which brings, brings us, of course, to number 44. Another anthology series making its debut on the countdown. Rob Burnett, tell us what it is. Uh, This episode is called A Feasibility Study. We are their guinea pigs. But we are human guinea pigs, which gives us some choice in this experiment. Human choice. We can choose to make their enslavement of our Earth infeasible. We can choose not to escape infection. We can deliberately become what they are. And it is a great episode of The Outer Limits. And again, another episode I loved as a kid. And like so many Outer Limits episodes, this is one downer of a story. And in it, the planet Luminos, these aliens have this weird disease where they basically end up becoming these inert, inert. They can't move anymore. And they need, they're looking for slaves to, to do all their manual labor. And they basically kidnap a suburban neighborhood and take it to their planet to see if they can put humanity through its paces so they can enslave, they can enslave us. And so this, this group of, of human beings has to deal with the fact that they've been transported to this alien planet. And then if they don't, if they're disobedient, and they don't listen to the Lumino- Luminosians, they will be infected by this disease as well. And what is so amazing about this episode is that eventually the, the 
humanity, the, the, the suburbanites band together and they give up their lives basically in an act of defiance and accept their fate of, of succumbing to this disease rather than give in and become slaves. And their sacrifice essentially saves the earth because the Luminos, the aliens from Luminos realize, well, these people would rather, they would not, they would rather die free than live as slaves. And much like the Telosians learned. Uh, absolutely. Much like, although they learned it in this episode or a little couple of years earlier. That's correct. Um, but it's just, I love the Outer Limits. And the Outer Limits used to scare me as a kid, just seeing the control voice come on. We control the horizontal. We control the vertical. And this was a show that I knew, again, when I was a little kid, I would sort of creep down and turn it on. And like, I didn't want to be too close to the TV. <laughs> because I mean, they control the vertical and yes. they control the horizontal. Well, and also there, there was like always some crazy monster on the other end of some TV that they were yeah. that they were dialing in from another planet. And I it was again, I watched this and it was it was a little over my head. But I, it's funny when you think about how when we were kids, for me, that it was the third part of the triumvirate. It was Star Trek. It was the Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits. And then there, that, that was all that was on when I was a kid. Then I found the Irwin Allen shows like Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants. And then it was UFO and Space 1999. But. But the, these shows, man, Star Trek, which has a lot of horror elements that people forget about more than more than you remember. But the, the Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and Star Trek were they put the zap on my head, man. And they gave me a lifelong love of of dark storytelling. And man, I love this. And this episode is it is just a downer, man. But I love it. Well, Akino Lorber did a really great um a two uh, Blu-ray set of Outer Limits, and it's tough. You know, it's tough for a new audience uh, because a lot of, for a new audience, it's really tough. I think um, mm. to get over some of the '60s production values, uh, unfortunately, because you look at something as great as like Demon with a Glass Hand, and the aliens are basically guys with um, you know stockings over their uh, faces, you know, and in pajamas. And uh, and I think for certain people, they they can't just accept the fact this is great writing. This is of its, you know, made of its of a certain age, and and you have to just accept that you're not going to get like oh, these incredible prosthetics, you know, or whatever. And I think that's why Outer Limits, I don't think has, it's not that it hasn't stood the test of time, it has, but I don't think it it it, it looms in the consciousness the way that uh, Twilight Zone does. Although it did get a more successful revival on Showtime, uh, the Pendentium revival, where they did a couple of really good episodes. I mean, I mean it was hit boobies. or miss, but. And, yeah. and well, plus Outer Limits only had a couple seasons, right? Whereas yeah, two uh, seasons. Twilight Zone had what seven? Was it or five? Twilight Zone had five seasons. Five, five. Um, but uh, yeah, it, there's just a, a hell of a lot more Twilight Zone to go around, and that's why uh, it was more viewed on TV. Yeah. Number forty-three. We um, uh, in the last two decades or several decades, cable really changed things where, you mm -hmm. know, from, from network TV, there were so many limitations on network TV and you started to see a more complex, more dark, more, um, you know, intriguing stories with cable. And then streaming came along a couple of years ago and up the bar even more in terms of the kinds of stories people were telling. And one of the uh, original series that put Hulu on the map was the handmaid's tale. The Handmaid's Tale, of course, is an adaptation of Margaret Atwood's novel. Um, 
It uh, was made very badly as a feature film back in the 90s, I believe. Um, I remember the Cinefantastic cover story. I don't remember the year it was made. So when this debuted, I didn't have very high expectations. But the pilot off-red of The Handmaid's Tale is a brilliant piece of uh, uh, speculative fiction. Unfortunately, it had its debut shortly after uh, Trump was inaugurated. It depicted a world in which uh, women were basically uh, um, uh, the few that could still bear children were um, now sort of enslaved to the patriarchy. Um, and uh, Elizabeth Moss, who was so great in Mad Men, has uh, never been better. It's beautifully directed by Reed Morano. And uh, although I don't think that the show has necessarily held up over the years, this pilot is among the best that speculative uh, uh, fiction uh, has to offer. Uh, it's about something, it has something to say, has brilliant performances, and it's extremely powerful. And that's why it's my pick for number 43. Chair, table, a lamp. There's a window with white curtains and the glass is shatterproof, but it isn't running away they're afraid of. The handmaid wouldn't get far. It's those other escapes, the ones you can open in yourself given a cutting edge or a twisted sheet and a chandelier. I try not to think about those escapes. It's harder on ceremony days, but thinking can hurt your chances. My name is Alfred. I had another name, but it's forbidden now. So many things are forbidden now. All right. Well, that brings, uh, brings it to me for number 42. And uh, we have another episode of Space 1999, folks. Yes, the Space Birds are here again. And uh, this- Who would have thought it? Who would have thought uh, all those years ago when we started the Trek Spurts that we'd just rather talk about Space 1999 occasionally. 99 Spurts. But the reality <laughs> is right now, Space 1999 has more episodes in the countdown than Next Generation or the original series. Hard to believe. We'll keep up. We don't it's know. True. We'll find out. Well, this one is called, this one is yet another one off the Power Records uh, uh, album, by the way. Uh, And this is Death's Other Dominion. I feel we shouldn't stay here at all. John, we may be on the threshold of a new step in the evolution of man. Fulians and Alphans may be the forerunners of a new race of humans as different from ourselves as we are from our caveman ancestors. Oh, we could be staring down a blind alley, Victor. Commander, I just don't see what you've got against it. I should have thought that it was a matter of individual choice. All of you could come. But those of you who prefer uh, mortality and the off chance of bumping into a pleasant planet can stay on Alpha if they choose. Now, uh, this is a uh, this is one of the, the ones that were a little more cerebral up until sort of the last act. And... Uh, there's a lot of talky talk. And uh, as a kid, I didn't uh, really get into it until, again, I listened to the record album and it made it all clear to me. Um, but I, I, uh, I 
gained a, a very deep appreciation for this because the performances are uh, pretty over the top and great. Uh, what happens in the story is that uh, the moon comes across this planetoid that uh, has been settled by uh, survivors of the Uranus probe from, uh, from Earth. From the Uranus probe, probe. Don't tell me how to say it. It's sickens him. <laughs> um, Want to hear about Uranus probe? That's right. Uh, what are we, among, three? Them, among them are a, a famous scientist, Dr. Cabot Rowland, and uh, his, uh, his assistant, uh, Jack Tanner. And apparently they, they crashed on this planetoid. They named it Ultima Thule, which is uh, uh, an old uh, uh, literary word for the edge of the known universe. And they found that they were living forever. They were not aging. Uh, and it was, they thought it was something in the food or the environment or what have you, but all of the, all of the members of the, uh, of the lost probe crew uh, were not aging at all and they were living forever. So they thought that they had discovered the fountain of youth. And unfortunately, uh, Jack Tanner uh, uh, went insane and he started to uh, uh, howl at the moon and he, he basically became the court jester to the whole uh, group. And he uh, becomes sort of the, the, the voice of warning to the Alphans when they, uh, when they come uh, to see the uh, survivors. But it's a really fascinating story. And of course, uh, Dr. Rowland uh, convinces the Alphans that he has the answer to everything. And, uh, and they're uh, uh, um, entranced by his story and his offerings. And he goes back with them on a on a, uh, an eagle to Alpha to bring everybody back to Ultima Thule. And whoops, he's dead. He turns into a horrible corpse that is holding on to Helena Russell's hand. And it's really great. It's really a big shocker. And uh, that stuck with me as a kid because all the things that really stuck with me as, as a kid were the things that really scared the bejesus out of me. And that was one of them. And uh, it was great. It was a great episode. And it, it has a lot of, as I said before, a lot of great performances in it. And a great name and Cabot Roland. That yeah. certainly belongs on our list. But uh, <laughs> well, I, I agree. Super creepy. Rob, why don't you tell us? Uh, it's a really, really good episode. Strong episode of the series. Yeah, I mean, the first season of, of Space 1999, it's absurd because even now, if the moon was blown out of Earth's orbit, it wouldn't be anywhere out of our solar system. So the fact that it's traveling to all different star systems, because, you know, that's fine. Once you buy into that, yeah. the show had this dark, again, this dark, fatalistic, existential nature to it, where it really was about the the, the infinitude of the cosmos and what we were going to find out there. And and it's things like this, like the cosmos was wholly inhospitable to human life. Yeah. Humanity was not welcome. It was like, stay in your lane. And, and we're every episode, they Mind figured the out a new way to, yeah, to crush the human spirit. And the Alphans somehow prevailed. But there, it was almost like they were going deeper and deeper into the underworld. The Lovecraftian, Cthulhu, <laughs> nether regions of, 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 of creation. Uranus probe was in the nether regions. Hey. <laughs> You know, I'll tell you what else Space 1999 had. An Eagles. awesome theme song. Yes, it did. And cool guns and eagles. I had the eagle toy. It was the best. 
Oh, I have many new ones right over there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a really creepy episode, especially all those people they experimented on, yeah. you know, who are wandering around sort of aimlessly. And when they discover the fact that they're, you know, it, it's great. And then, you know, you have great shots of eagles launching and landing. That's, that's all you need. That's all you need. You know, take off, land. People, you know, get on and off the eagle. I could watch it'd, an hour of it'd that. It'd be nice to create a pure episode of Space 1999 with just eagles, eagles taking, taking off, off, eagles flying past, the, that travel and pod going rest. back and forth. Yep. <laughs> I to mean, me, you know, that would be, be our number one. If yeah. you needed a number one, you need to write the greatest episode of science fiction ever. It would just be It's a, called a, a, a Busy Day on the Moon. Of it flashing this episode, this episode, <laughs> a busy day on the moon. It'd be like the little engine that could, except it'd be the eagle. And it would land and it would come up on the landing pad yeah. and it would take off and it would fly over area B or whatever. And occasional and occasionally a couple guys in the in the orange uh, moon buggy would go by. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you see them go in the space old. elevator yes. to, to go on to the Eagle. Yes. And then they drop like the cargo bay and then they pick it up again. And then they land on the landing pad sure. and it would lower into the alpha. Be great. That's all it had to be. That's a perfect episode. <laughs> Spaceship porn. Uh, great which, stuff. Which brings us to number four. And then the Hawks would show up in the, in the, in the, in the end, the in the, the final act. Okay. Enough of that. Number 41, Mr. Burnett. Well, this comes from the recent Watchmen sequel TV series that was a sequel to actually the comics. And this is the sixth episode, This Extraordinary Being. You're not supposed to take someone else's nostalgia. That's very bad. Is this starting? Maybe confused as to who you are right now. You are an angry man, William Reeves. I'm not angry. Hey, boy. I'm your husband, Calvin. We have three children. You don't know what's really happening here. You need to come home. You need to wake up. And one of one of the the I guess the racism and our humanity's hatred toward one another based on how we look and what colors we are, the varying shades of humanity was definitely and especially a black America was an undercurrent of the show. And this extraordinary being our main character, Regina King, uh, her character is under the the she's taken a drug called nostalgia and she it, she's basically reliving the life of her grandfather who was the first one of the first black cops in New York City in 1938 and it shows the kind of racial injustice and the horrible prejudice he had to face and what drove him to become the hooded justice uh, a masked vigilante who was one of the first uh, uh, where the, the Minutemen and how he came to grips and how he ended up in a same sex relationship and his whole life and his married life and how it didn't work. And it is just a riveting portrayal of race relations and, and what it was like to be a black man in New York city as a cop in 1938. And it, it's just, it is an incredibly hard hitting, but yet very imaginative and engrossing episode of television that is brilliantly made, uh, beautifully executed. And I was stunned by this. I, I felt 
I was very as a Watchmen comic fan. I I was very mixed about this show, but this episode was one of the most extraordinary hours of television I've seen in 25 years. Yeah, that's interesting, Rob, because I felt the same way. I was a huge Watchmen fan, so I was expecting one thing. And, and you know, when it opens with that very powerful, the first episode uh, uh, of the Tulsa race riots mm-hmm. uh, or massacre, as it was in those, that first 15 minutes, it's like you can't deny this is brilliant television. Is it the Watchmen? Not so much. But, right. uh, it, you know, Damon Lindelof has delivered something really spectacular um and 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 groundbreaking and the fact that it 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 took him after all these years to sort of tell some of these stories that are not you know widely spoken of is really a testament to him and uh why the show is so significant um but yeah you know as as a fan of the fan of the comic it could be a little disconcerting at first for sure yeah it's just a great really well it just shows how far the, the, the television as a medium has come because this episode's incredibly cinematic and the level of production value and direction and the time that they're able to take now on uh, on television and what they're able to do and things like post-production. And the amount of money they spend. Man. Yeah, but you see every penny of it in the show. Yeah, well, number 40, you can't take the sky from me. No, you can't. Of course, I'm talking about the short-lived Fox series, Firefly. The episode, Out of Gas. Ship's clear, Captain. You check the engine room? It's like he said, catalyzer's blown. That's all he needs. You know, anything that's worth anything is really right here in this cargo bay. So you take a look around, decide what you think is fair. Already decided. We're taking your ship. Billy, get this plugged in. Jesse, call Stern over here. You and him are gonna pilot this pilot Gosa out of here. We'll get it as far as... Jesse? Don't call Stern. Billy, leave the catalyzer. Do as he says. (laughs) Take your people and go. This has it all. Three different time periods. We learn how Mal Reynolds, played by the wonderful Nathan Fillion, put the his crew together. And uh, at the same time, they're trying to survive after an accident has uh, made the, uh, the ship dead in space. And uh, they're quickly losing oxygen. And uh, what will the crew of the Firefly do to survive? It's a great story. It has that Joss Whedon mix of comedy and pathos and drama. Um, And ultimately, it fires on all cylinders. It was tough because one of the other episodes that we talked about was Objects in Space, which is also another great episode about a bounty hunter. Uh, But, uh, you know, we want to avoid another series finale. So instead, what this delivers is um, sort of a prequel, sequel, um, kind of uh, to the show and answers a lot of questions uh, in unexpected ways about how this crew and this unlikely family uh, came together. And it's very satisfying and uh, a great example of why a Firefly should have and could have endured for many more years, but was uh, terminated by a short-sighted network bureaucracy. Even though its ship should never, ever win Starship SmackDown. Uh, I will say this about it being short-lived. If it were on Netflix, it would be like one of the longest running shows. 
on Netflix. Like in the way that we talk about shows today, when it's like eight episodes a season and it's like you get three in it. I mean, come on. That's a that's a long lived, very healthy series. You know, I, I prefer to think of it that way. It's a little more positive. No, it's true. In a world of eight and ten episode orders, you know, two uh, two or or uh, you know two or three years can be the equivalent of uh, a one year of an old network show, which could have gone anywhere from you know sixteen to twenty six episodes. So it's absolutely true. Um, the, the 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 rules have changed, and we have to evolve with them. I'm altering the deal. To... Pray I don't alter it any further. <laughs> Which brings us to episode 39 and another show making its debut on the countdown. Ashley, tell us what it is. At number 39, it is uh, one of my favorite episodes of a, a squirrely little show that I think only lasted one season, but I loved it. It should have lasted longer. Um, the show is called Millennium. Um, the episode was written by the great Darren Morgan. It is called Somehow Satan Got Behind Me. Some people think the world is going to hell in a handbasket. <coughs> this Friday, meet the guys responsible. What's the point of being a devil if you can't have a little fun? Get ready for the weirdest, most outrageous episode of the season. <coughs> An all-new millennium, Friday at 9, 8 Central on Fox. Now, Darren Morgan was known on the X-Files for his uh, his very quirky episodes. I, I can tell you, having seen some of his outlines for Fringe, um, that reputation was was well-earned. I believe the man was probably quirkier even than, uh, than his final episodes would suggest. His reputation was that, you know, you couldn't really count on him to deliver anything fast. You just kind of asked him to write, and he would go off, and eventually he would kind of shove a script under the door, and it would be brilliant. Uh, and somehow Satan got behind me is certainly an example of that. Um, and the premise of this episode is four demons are in a diner and they're all talking about their encounters with the main character, Frank Black, uh, who is played by Lance Henriksen. It's kind of Lance Henriksen perfectly cast uh, in this role. And basically how Frank Black like kind of like ruined their days as demons. And it's it's just brilliant you feel for these guys it kind of turns the hero of the show into kind of the villain of each of their stories it's so smart it's so good um our good friends uh kay rendell and aaron marr worked on this show um and and they're awesome um, and, and they had you know, a great I, I experience love, yeah for sure I, I and it was an amazing experience for them and i would i would love to sit down with them sometime and just ask them about what it was like when this script arrived because i just think it's it's brilliant yeah, uh, and it is, it's probably the best argument millennium had for continuing like much longer than it actually did why don't we call her right now <laughs> let's not this, uh, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll find out another time uh, uh absolutely and people talk a lot about the x-files you don't hear them talking about millennium as much so it's great to see it uh making its debut on the countdown which brings us to number 38 and another show which has been very quiet so far, but I'm not surprised to see it finally calling in. And that's Doctor Who, Rob Burnett. Tell us what we're, uh, what's number 38. Well, this, this episode is also, it's called Blink. And it's also known as Doctor Who Light because there's very little of the Doctor in it. Doctor Who is trapped in 1969 and he's trying to protect the TARDIS in the future in 2007. And he contacts... Carrie Mulligan as a character named Sally Sparrow, the great Carrie Mulligan. And he warns her 
about, I, I think, one of the great alien species, if you want to call them that, the Weeping Angels. I'm a time traveler. Or I was. I'm stuck. In 1969. We're stuck. All of space and time he promised me. Now I've got a job in a shop. I've got to support him. Martha. Sorry. I've seen this bit before. Quite possibly. 1969, that's where you're talking from. Afraid so. But you're replying to me. You can't know exactly what I'm going to say 40 years before I say it. 38? I'm getting this down. I'm writing in your bits. How? How is this possible? Tell me. Not so fast. Uh, people don't understand time. It's not what you think it is. Then what is it? Complicated. Tell me. Very complicated. I'm clever and I'm listening. And don't patronise me because people have died and I'm not happy. Tell me. These creatures that if you look at them, they turn to stone and they look like statues. But when you don't look at them, when you look away, they can move and they can come, they can come get you. And, and basically the, the episode deals with, it's not really, I guess it's a haunted house. You could call it that, but Sally and her friend, they have to figure out a way to contact those DVD special features. And this was part of the plot and, and how the doctor is trying to contact them and protect the weeping angels, protect the TARDIS from the, or the weeping angels and this episode is all kinds of creepy. It's it's a great dramatic presentation. It won Stephen Moffat, who later went on, who succeeded Russell Davies as showrunner of Doctor Who, wrote this episode, and he won a BAFTA for it. But if you watch this, you will never forget the Weeping Angels. They're so creepy and so scary. And I, you know, I didn't realize how many horror themed episodes. Uh, I picked, but I guess there's, a, there's something about well, that. Rob, but I, I got to tell you, um, you know, I grew up on uh, Doctor Who and Tom Baker and K-9 and all that, you know, so <laughs> I, I thought, you know, okay, maybe Seeds of Doom or one of these these classic Doctor Whos, but uh, it, it's hard to argue that there's a better episode of Doctor Who than Blink, uh, and uh, obviously uh, with a, a fantastic uh, performance at, at its heart, but uh, it really is one of the most creepy and and off putting. It's kind of what uh, wink of an eye could have been, um, <laughs> but uh, it, it it's it, it is uh, it's really a great episode of TV. And for even for people who are not a fan of Doctor Who, um, they should really check this out because you may be a fan after you see this marvelous episode. And yeah, you don't even need to know much about Doctor Who. You just know that, oh, this guy's trying to contact this girl, you know, and then she gets sent back in time. And that's like all you kinds of, well, you know what, then? I am like, I'm your target because, guys, I don't really dig on Doctor Who. I love Torchwood, but Doctor Who, I'm just like, eh, okay, whatever. It, 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 but I'll watch this. I haven't seen it. I'm going to watch it. And I'll David Tennant's great. You don't, there are a lot of other episodes in Tenant Seasons where you really need to go in knowing sort of the, the mythology and everything. This you don't, uh, no. it's, it's there's no barrier to entry and it will creep you out. Watch it with the lights on because it's that's creepy. Yeah, okay, it's so good. So, so good. so good, so good. And I'm not surprised to see Doctor Who after all these years of episodes finally making out to a countdown. So many great episodes. But, you know, I think Blink may very well be the best of them, uh, which brings us to number 37 and a show making its debut on our countdown. It seemed inevitable. And that is Game of Thrones, the episode, The Mountain and the Viper. No, the for thing, science fiction content. Well, this is fantasy. 
What do you tell them? I'm Theon Greyjoy, son of Balon. Bring me Moat Caelan. Lord Baelish has told many lies. I have to tell the truth. Manson's army must be close. If they hit Mole's town, then we're next. Do you think Oberyn has a chance? You're going to fight that? The 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 the, the uh, Mount the Viper, uh, you know, people probably remember the famous uh, uh, battle to the death between the Mountain and the Mandalorian at the end of that episode. But um, there's so much more to this episode than just this this, this combat. Um, there's there's some wonderful stuff where uh, Sansa is at the Vale and it looks like Littlefinger's jig is up, and she manages to sort of have his back. And we see the learner has become the master as she lies to the masters of the veil about what happened to uh, their queen. And uh, this episode is just so rife uh, with um, amazing stuff. And uh, obviously uh, Cersei Lannister at her most, um, her most evil. And uh, you also have uh, Peter Dinklage uh, as, as a, uh, as he's trying to extricate himself from a very bad situation <laughs> after having, uh, after having been framed for uh, poisoning uh, King Joffrey. And uh, it doesn't look like he's going to get out of it. And then the Mandalorian offers his services, Pedro Pascal, <laughs> um, and uh, offers to, uh, to be his champion. And at first we don't think he, ho- he has much of a, a chance until we see him fight and turns the tables and for a while it looks like he will indeed uh bring the mountain to muhammad but uh it just reminds uh, your dinklage means more to me than you will ever know it it just reminds you why the uh, theme has the lyrics that it does dinklage peter dinklage peter dinklage peter dinklage peter (laughs) it doesn't (laughs) wow Uh, (laughs) i don't know what to say to that I, I, but it also I, has a really shocking ending. Oh, it's yeah, got a yeah, great sure. Game of Thrones conclusion where you're really left with your jaw hanging on the floor because you think it's going to go and one so way. And so is the Mandalorian. That's right. Got, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, when that show is firing on all cylinders, as it did during the you know second, third, fourth, it fifth It did many, seasons, times. There, many, there, many there, times. Yeah, there, there was no that was... Uh, uh, you know, better on TV. And uh, I think it's also a show that holds up a lot of shows that we go back and watch may not hold up as well, but game of Thrones, which recently was released in 4k by HBO on, on disc uh, Blu-ray UHD is just stunning to watch. And I recently uh, rewatched the series after reading Jamie Hibbard's fabulous book, fire uh, can't kill a dragon, uh, which is an oral history of the um, making of game of Thrones, which I did not write, but I did read. And I'm quite a, a quite a big fan of that book. So uh, that was number 37, The Mountain and the Viper, Game of Thrones, which brings us to 36. And another show making its first appearance on our list. It's <laughs> another Glenn Morgan show, Space Above and Beyond. Ashley Miller, tell us what our pick is. So at number 36, and it's, look, it's another season finale. It's kind of become a cliche in our, our, our list of greatest. But, but in a way, this episode... Um, the the uh, it, it's called Teller Moms. We done our best, 
But I wanted to bring you up to date. Looks like the envoy is legit. Each side will now present each other with a list of criteria to be met before negotiations can begin. Including a list of TELUS and Vesta Colony prisoners. Looks good. Sir, you saw it. What does the chick look like? Admiral Stenner doesn't want to talk about, so I won't. Colonel, what'll you do if the war's over? Well, I'll find a quiet place, alone, and ask forgiveness for the lives I've taken. Then I'll pull out the accordion, get naked, and polka around the flight deck. Pray for war. Did you know Coop's sentence is up? I can go home. To what? I miss you guys. But I'm glad it's over. Except for Nathan. Even if the war ends, it's not over. Like, the reason why I picked this one in particular is because Space Above and Beyond, like Millennium, was yet another great uh, one-and-done um, season of television from uh, Morgan and Wong, from Glenn Morgan and James Wong. Um, it's, it's a great show. I don't know that it necessarily started off as the best show. The pilot was merely okay. But as the show developed, as it turned into this World War II story in space, it became so smart. It became so good. Um, the characters were great. The action was great. Um, it had like just this perfectly controlled tone. Um, you know, it was just, it was kind of everything that you wanted a show like this to be. Um, and, you know, it, you just, you loved everybody. And what was awesome about Tell Our Moms We Done Our Best is that, it left our characters. It was the, the best kind of cliffhanger, right? Where it wasn't just that everybody's uh, fate was, was left as a question mark and they were left in jeopardy. It was that the show built up the credibility to leave them in that jeopardy. That when the show was over and you knew it wasn't coming back, that in some ways the, the, the state that our heroes were left in, even though it was awful, was kind of okay because it felt right. right. Um, I think Space Above and Beyond is one of the great unsung science fiction television shows. It is absolutely worth your valuable time. You need to find it. You need to watch it. You need to see this episode and truly appreciate and recognize what these guys were trying to do at a time when nobody really understood science fiction in this way. Like these guys were trying to do things um, with success that you know nobody tried again truly or succeeded at truly until Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica. Right. Like this is this is really like the test run for a lot of things um, that Battlestar tried. Um, just a great show and a great yeah. episode. R really good point. Um, thing about Space Above and Beyond, it was for Fox, which never got it. It was a very expensive show. They shot in Australia, so there was a big learning curve. Australia. 
um, you know, in terms of understanding how to the production. But it was ultimately more than a science fiction show. It was a World War II men on a mission. And when I say men, obviously women and men. Also women. Yeah. Like uh, and, and of course, uh, Kristen Cloak was in it, uh, who's wonderful. Um, it, it has a very Starship Troopers uh, type vibe. And uh, I think one of the reasons, unfortunately, like a lot of shows of the era that is not as well known is because it was the early stages of visual effects, of computer visual effects. And so they don't hold up particularly well in much the way uh, the case of the effects on Babylon 5. And as a result, the shows haven't been ported over to high def um, and uh, aren't as well known. But Space Above and Beyond, it was basically Glenn Morgan and Jim Wong cashing in their chips from the success of X-Files, getting to do the show that they wanted to do, Space Above and Beyond, and it burned brightly and shortly for a short time, but uh, a, a significant science fiction series. Um, and uh, I think it goes back to what Ashley said earlier. Had we lived this been done in the age of streaming for a streaming channel, it probably would have been a lot more successful and yeah. lasted a lot more seasons. Could have been a monster. Well, this list that is a brings monster. us. This list is a to, monster. So we we need to go up to number thirty five and Rob Burnett. Well, uh, we've had multiple episodes from single shows. Now we're going to have a second episode from a writer who has already appeared, uh, Darren Morgan, who wrote uh, "Somehow Satan Got Behind Me" uh, for Millennium. Wrote this episode, Clive Bruckman's final repose. And it was from the third uh, season of The X-Files, and it's one of the best episodes of the series. And it dealt with, with a man, Peter Boyle, who was a psychic. And Mulder and Scully get involved in, as they do, murder investigations. And uh, Clive Bruckman has unique abilities, and they get involved with him. And apparently his psychic abilities came as a result of when Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper died in a car, uh, plane crash. And he acquired these abilities. And Peter Boyle's performance in this episode as as Clyde Bruckman is heartbreaking, you know, and you you just you really feel for this guy. And he starts seeing visions of what the killer is going to do to Mulder. And and it he ends up I, I mean, this the story is your murder mystery. It's a typical murder mystery, really. But it's all about how it affects Clyde Bruckman and what kind of a man he is and 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 the fact that this ability has been really not something that he ever wanted and it's it hasn't been good to him I mean even though he can win the lottery sometimes it's just the rest of his life has turned to, to it's turned to hell because these things keep happening to him and it's it's just he's such a sad guy and at the end of the episode he actually takes his own life am I keeping you awake I'm waiting for you to ask me another one of those psychic ability questions. Well, I've had dreams in my life where I had a vision and then later on I've seen that vision in reality. And, and, and as a psychic, have you ever had prophetic dreams like that? I have only one dream. I dream it every night. You're not one of those people who turns everything into a sexual symbol, are you? No, no, I'm not a Freudian, no. I'm lying naked. In a field of red tulips. I'm not concerned with where I am or how I got there. I'm at peace. And it's then that I realize I'm dead. My body begins to turn a greenish white with spots of purple. Next, the insects arrive. The inevitable follows putridity and liquescence. 
Before I know it, I'm nothing but bones. When I start fading to dust, I lose whatever care I still might have had about where my clothes are. And as I begin to feel myself slipping away towards I know not what, I wake up. Well, good night. And it is it is just this incredible character study that only the X-Files could have gotten away with. I don't think any other TV series, a mainstream network show, even though this was only a Fox, could get away with. And that's what made the X-Files so great. And it's I think it's Darren Morgan's, while somehow saying got me high, behind me is fun and, and he wrote other X-Files episodes that are incredible, there's something about this episode, the humanity and the, the darkness and just the melancholy nature of this episode that gets me every time. Rob, do you remember... Uh, when we did the second annual Sci-Fi Universe Awards, we gave Peter Boyle an award for this. Um, and it was such a pleasure to have the opportunity to give this magnificent actor an award for this episode. That was a, done it, we did it at the El Rey. Amazing turnout. Uh, Black we, tie we event. Everybody. That was, we had the cast of, or some of the people from Space Above and Beyond there. We did, we did. I just, I just, keep, cast. I just keep imagining him singing Putting on the Ritz. <laughs> but he was very gracious i remember he was very gracious and he was very enthusiastic about accepting an award for this episode which he was very proud of that was that was the good times <laughs> was well good you time. know he it would have been a long time since he'd been the administrator of con am 27 they brought him back from <laughs> they brought him back from, from io <laughs> uh, so marshall <laughs> from from the marshall to number 34 and finally, making its debut on our list of 101 uh, top t- sci-fi and fantasy shows, it's a Star Trek show we've been waiting for. Darren Doctorman, tell us what it is. From Deep Space Nine, that, uh, that fa- favorite of, of many Star Trek fans. Um, once Deep Space Nine has sort of established itself and uh, established the characters and was was on a good roll of developing all these stories and, and happenings on Deep Space Nine, they took a little break for one episode to send a true love letter to the original series with trials and tribulations. Prepare for an unforgettable hour of television. God, that's him. Oh, Kirk. An historic encounter between two legendary crews. He's so much more handsome in person. Together in one of Star Trek's most beloved adventures. They are detestable creatures. This. Celebrate an extraordinary event you'll have to see to believe. Too much fun. Next time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. A literal sequel, or how do you put this? A, a, it's an episode that's made at the same time as the original uh, uh, Trouble with Tribbles. Um, it's sort of the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, uh, representation of uh, 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 Trouble with Tribbles. Um, and it deals with uh, them uh, having the, is it the, uh, the Orb of Time? Is that what it is? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they go back to, because they, they discover uh, a character... I'm not going to spoil it for some people. Yeah, of course I'm going to spoil it. Um, Arne Darvin, who was uh, the assistant to the, uh, to the local manager of, uh, of space relations uh, for, the, uh, for the Federation, um, turned out to be a Klingon spy who was trying to ruin... Surely not. The- Surely. Surely not. <laughs> 
And uh, he turned out to be a Klingon spy who was trying to sabotage the uh, development of Sherman's planet and give the Klingons the rightful uh, ownership of the planet. They found him out because of the Tribbles, the Tribbles who, uh, who yelled like crazy when in the presence of a Klingon. And even Arne Darwin, who had been uh, surgically changed to look like a human, which was a lot more easy in those days, um, they found him out. And so we find him on Deep Space Nine uh, trying to get his revenge by going back in time and blowing up the Tribbles and getting his revenge on Captain Kirk. And so uh, Cisco and Bashir and Odo and most of our, our regular cast go back in time with Dax, him. Hubba, Dax, Hubba. Dax, most memorably absolutely. Dax. <laughs> um, and they go back to Deep Space Station K7 uh, with the original Enterprise. Uh, and it's uh, it all takes place during the episode. And it's really wonderful because some of them are on the Enterprise, some of them are on Deep Space Nine. And they are interacting with the characters during the episode. And it's so it's so fun. And it's such a it's such a it's a great technical uh, journey. It's a great uh, story exploration. It's just so much fun. And uh, it was the first time that they did really good transfers of the original series episode. So you could see a lot more detail in them. And that was an eye opener for everybody. Um, But it's really fun. And Greg Jean built miniatures uh, for it that they shot of the original Enterprise and of uh, K7. Uh, and it's and a just, Klingon battlecruiser. And a Klingon battlecruiser. Um, and it, it also nearly led to the uh, premature end of my marriage. Oh, did it? I, yeah, I, I had recently been married to my, my lovely wife and mother of my, my three children. And when this episode aired, I invited two of my friends from college Your to friends. come up and visit and watch the episode with me in our apartment. My wife wisely vacated the premise and we watched that episode over and over again while drinking martinis and beers again and again and again and when my wife arrived home what she found was one of my friends passed out on the floor another passed out on the couch and me sitting on the couch unconscious slowly pouring a beer on the head of my friend on the floor um all i remember is going out somewhere around act four of uh, the third viewing of this episode. And then my wife in my face, just yelling, just. Ash, please don't blame the episode on your own weakness. No, no, I blame the episode. (laughs) Let me tell you what's important about this episode of Star Trek. It is truly a love letter to the show that we hold dear. It is made by people who love Star Trek for people that love Star Trek. It is a template for how to pay homage to the original series and not just the original series, but Star Trek as a whole. There's a fundamental understanding of the characters and it, it, at the, you know, it's, it's always interesting to see Ira Bear say, this is not the best episode of Deep Space Nine. Don't call it the best episode of Deep Space Nine. It's the 80th episode of the original Star Trek. It's not an episode of Deep Space Nine. And he's, he's he, in, in a way, he's, he's very much right. Um, there's wonderful performances. And I just, 
this thing was was destined to be because Ira Bear, of course, tells that great story about how when they were trying to decide how to pay homage to Star Trek on its anniversary, they 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 broached the subject of this episode and they said, "Well, we'd have to get Charlie Brill back to play Arn Darvin. Is he even alive?" And I think it was either Robert Wolf or somebody who was at the table. Oh, I'm pretty sure he's alive. Well, how do you know? Because he's sitting across the restaurant. And sure enough, <laughs> Charlie Brill is sitting in the same restaurant oh having goodness. lunch. And they walk up to Charlie Brill and say, you know, Mr. Brill, we work on the Star Trek series. We're, would you be interested in reprising your role if we were to do this episode? Of course, I always love when they say, you know, is an actor interested in coming Would back? I be it interested? Is the see that all the time. Get, you know, Garrett, Garrett, you know, Garrett Kim is, uh, Garrett, Garrett, Garrett Wong is interested Garrett in reprising, uh, you know, uh, Harry Kim for, for, for uh, Picard. Of course he is. What do you think? He's going to say no. So it's like Charlie Brill jumped at the chance to uh, reprise this role. And it is just a wonderful and heartfelt, funny, charming, fantastic episode. And by the way, it features credit. Every single writer on the show is credited on this episode. Yeah, well, it was it was a bit of a gangbang. I mean, they all yeah, it was, they all but like, but in the did. best way. It was like it was a labor of love for all of well, them. Well, certainly not in the best way. Well, not in the absolute <laughs> best way. Like maybe in the second best way, but like in the second best way. It wasn't like they're like oh shit. Like there are other episodes that may or may not wind up on our list that were gangbangs. Um, that were like oh my god that worked. But Trials and Tribulations was a was a was a labor of love for all of these guys. And they really, truly collaborated. And the fact that it that had all of their names on it was was just a way of them saying, like, this is this is something that we love and this is our gift, both to you and to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And that brings us to number 33, making its debut on the countdown, the Orville. It's the two-parter identity. You may enter. Why have you brought Ty here? He was attempting to send a message to Earth. Did he succeed? There is no evidence of an outgoing signal in the logs. Then all is well. I will return him to the shuttle bay. You will not. He is to be terminated. That does not seem to be a necessary course of action. Are you experiencing sympathy? That is not possible for a Kalon. Isaac, hold me, please. I will take responsibility for him. I will ensure he does not attempt further non-compliance. That is insufficient. Isaac. Primary, there are other options. You will now terminate the human. If you do not comply, you will be deactivated. Identity, of course, is the story of a robot revolution. Um, and where we find out the lovable Isaac is not as lovable as we are led to believe with one of the great space battles uh, uh, in, in, in contemporary modern uh, science fiction. This, of course, speaking of love letters, this is uh, Seth MacFarlane's love letter to uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, what is really fantastic about this show is um, the fact that it is uh, uh, it evolved. You know, from the pilot, which was f basically Family Guy in space with some very, um, uh, ra you know, raunchy humor, which didn't really seem to fit. You know, what worked in Ted didn't really seem to fit this Star Trek The Motion Next Generation homage. But the show slowly, slowly found its identity and um, 
no pun intended. And it, this is their best of both worlds. This is a show where the Orville really comes into its own. Uh, it, it works as uh, production values. And it also um, is a great story uh, with a great payoff. And it makes the Orville a significant show in science fiction history. It also has real stakes. Like, again, this this could go very wrongly for the galaxy and humanity. Yeah. And it, it, real ha it really has stakes. And I, I love that about this episode. And it also has the feel of an original series episode, too. You know, you could see Dr. Corby trying to pull this off. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> and uh, it, Easier it, than setting a broken finger. <laughs> <laughs> very much so very much so now uh, now that we're in a star trek frame of mind we go to number 32 and robert burnett i guess i'm just the series finale guy uh, for this list <laughs> series, uh, finale, series finale spurt once again uh <laughs> the seventh season finale and the series finale for star trek the next generation uh, one of the most celebrated episodes of science fiction television probably ever. All good things. It began with an incredible journey through time. I am going to be the cause of the destruction of humanity. Now, the past, the present, and the future are about to collide. We are defenseless. And the fate of all mankind depends on one man. We can't stay, Captain. We have to. Everything depends on it. Goodbye, Jean-Luc. I'm going to miss you. But then again, all good things must come to an end. Next time on Star Trek, The Next Generation. Written by Brandon Braga and Ron Moore, who at the same time were writing Generations. And as they frequently said, they should have made this the movie. Um, and maybe had Generations be the last episode of the, of the series. But this is, of course, uh, an episode that opens with an elderly Picard uh, at Chateau Picard, you know, in his, in his tending his his vines, which they would then later return to in the episode uh, in Picard, the series Picard they did. Uh, but it's, it's set in three different time periods and there is lo and behold, some kind of uh, uh, an anomaly, a rip in the fabric of space time that is threatening in the future. It's, it's working its way backwards through time. And we then spend three, well, we, we, we explore three different time periods, three different versions of the enterprise. One, it's before encounter at Farpoint, the pilot. Right. And we see, we meet Tasha Yar for the first time and Data for the first time. And we see Picard take command of the Enterprise. But it's it's a Picard who remembers his life. And he's kind of trying to figure out how to deal with these people that he doesn't know, even though he does know them. Right. And then we have contemporary Picard and crew, which is our crew. And then we have the future where we see, we get to see this alternate future where all the relationships between the characters, Picard had married Beverly Crusher and they'd been divorced. And Beverly Crusher now commands her own ship, a medical ship and Worf and Riker are estranged because of the death of Deanna Troy. And and Riker is an admiral and Worf is a Klingon governor and their lives are both kind of not where they want to be. And Data is a professor at Oxford. And and it's it's a lot of fun seeing the future visions of our of our characters come back together again, like the professionals to go off to help <laughs> Picard. Good um, analogy. Yeah. To, to, to help him solve this problem because nobody will believe him. They think he's a crazy old coot of an of an old man. And it's I. I recently rewatched this again. This episode is just delightful. Uh, 
Yeah. It's got a great science fiction concept. And then, of course, on top of everything, John Delancey comes back as Q and you find out that the trial that he put humanity on in the very first episode has never ended. And this it's whole thing, the really, whole series, the whole series. And really, I mean, this whole anomaly thing, even though Q says, you set this up, Sean, but really it was Q's doing really. And uh, it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful yeah. science fiction show. It, it bookends the entire show. It was never intended that way. But, you know, the fact that, you know, Farpoint uh, uh, really uh, lays the groundwork for the way they resolved the show. Also, it planted the seeds. Most people don't know this for Battlestar Galactica. In the, in the early drafts, the Enterprise was a museum and they were going to break onto the break onto the museum and steal the Enterprise which ended up being what Ron Moore kind of did with Battlestar Galactica. The original Galactica was now retired as a museum. And then the only Battlestar that could be, you know, put into action during the silent attack. So uh, there's so much about this. That's great. It's only gotten better. Yeah, I think yeah. over time, because I remember when we first watched it, we were all a little disappointed in the amount of techno babble. And uh, I know so was Ron and Brandon who felt that Michael Pillar kind of overwrote those later acts with techno babble to sell the techno mystery because all the stuff involving the characters is so strong. Um, and, and what happens to characters, obviously it's still being mined today. Uh, you know, for people who've watched Picard, they, can see that they used a lot of the mythology that was established in all good things. Unfortunately, not a lot. Well, yeah, you know, what's really interesting is you're you're looking at Picard, the new series, and you're wondering, well, they had the template of how Picard should be already, even though it was an alternate future or whatever, and yet we got this sort of morose, broken-down man, whereas the Picard in all good things, the old Picard's like, no, we have to go. We have to go out there and fix this Crotchety problem. Picard. Yeah, yeah but, but but a man of action. Yeah, man and of action. I'm, I'm like, that's so we already had that. So to watch the Picard that they gave us in the Picard series was such a disappointment compared to the older Picard that we see tending his vines at the beginning of All Good Things. And what a great final shot, them playing poker, him stepping into the poker game and the camera spiraling out and revealing the Enterprise sort of warping, warping into the sunset. It's just You're it's, always it's a beautiful ending you know, and punctuation for those characters. And I don't think Star Trek had ever really ended up ever being better than that. Uh, you know, certainly in any of those movies that followed. Um, it certainly it, hasn't been better since. You know, it really, it was a, an amazing uh, thing. And, 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 and given, you know, the ups and downs of that seventh season and how overburdened Ron and Brandon were with the movie and, you know, everything else, it really is an incredible uh, uh, achievement, uh, you know, and of course, um, I think, you know, sort of m in a way, you know, Michael, Michael Piller would go on and do stuff on Voyager, but this was probably like his last, and he did, uh, you know, the Dead Zone TV series, but this was his last great piece of material, you know, up there with some of his other great work over the years. Uh, it's really it's really special. And, you know, I think people forget sometimes when they talk about the great season finales, series finales like Breaking Bad um, and, uh, you know, the, the, there are not a ton of these uh, that all good things, you know, is one of those few shows that really stuck the landing. Well, if we're ever going to stick the landing on this list, we got to move on. And, uh, and that brings that's... us to number 31, <laughs> returning with its third entry on this list. It's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Ashley, 
What's the episode? Coming in at number 31 is... Hush. I see what you did there. Can't even shout. Can't even cry. The gentlemen are coming by. Looking in windows. Knocking on doors. They need to take seven and they might take yours. Can't call to mom. Can't say a word. You're gonna die screaming but you won't be hurt. Hush. A special Buffy. So why is Hush on this list? Number one, because it's effing amazing. It's so scary. The the premise is that there are these these creatures, these like evil, awful, supernatural, demonic creatures. The gentlemen. (laughs) They levitate, they eat you, and they steal your voice. And nearly the entire episode is silent. There's no dialogue, as the characters basically have to communicate without speaking. Um, and the story goes that Joss Whedon wanted to write this episode because of all of the the talk that you know what made Buffy the Vampire Slayer a great show was the was the dialogue. She's like, okay, what if I just take that that away? You know, but be that as it may, Hush is just great on its own. It's a great high concept. It is so scary. The gentlemen are just awesome. It's incredibly well done. It's incredibly well made. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's something that you can just watch again and again. You could basically sit down and, and watch this episode knowing nothing else about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and be scared uh, and be into it and love it and think it was incredibly cool. Um, it, it it doesn't rely on like any of like the character angst. It doesn't it doesn't need any of that. What it has is a great premise, a great problem, and characters rising to the challenge um, in just a really fascinating, interesting, incredibly exciting way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and you know it's funny. Space Above and Beyond also did a similar episode where it was largely silent. Um, but, uh, this is a great example of that. And, uh, the, the makeup, the prosthetics, Camden toy and Doug Jones uh, as the gentleman are absolutely sensational. It is creepy and cool. And one is certainly the highlight of, of not one of Buffy's strongest seasons, season four. Um, so, uh, just fantastic and a great episode, which brings us to number 30 and a show also making its debut on the countdown. It's, Babylon 5, Rob Burnett. Babylon 5, this episode is Severed Dreams. And if you think about sci-fi television shows and episodes that are epic, this is truly an epic episode. It's from the third season. And the reason it's called Severed Dreams is this is when Babylon 5 severs its connection to Earth, the Earth Alliance. It used to represent all the hopes and dreams of Earth, but the shadows are on the move. The galaxy is in a state of turmoil. The president of the Earth is declaring martial law, and some of his military forces have broken away because they don't believe in him anymore. Uh, he is corrupt. He's bo- Mars, his own people get bombed, and um, Babylon 5 stands up for the, basically the rebellion of, from Earth, and it is... Uh, the the battles in this, I mean, nowadays you go back and you look at Babylon 5 and it looks like you're looking at 
some weird sci-fi cartoon from a an uh, an alternate universe because it's very early television CGI. And even though it was early CGI, there was a lot of it. I mean, they they never they never shied away from the fact, and never more so than in this episode. You've got massive capital ships battering on each other. You have the Star Furies. They're very cool one-man fighters. Swarms of them attacking. I mean, the, the battles and the battles here are the Earth forces fighting against one another. And it is it's just epic. And of course, Sheridan's caught in the middle, the Mimbari, and, and uh, they're trying to save everybody. And it's just it, 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 it from the middle of season three of Babylon five to the middle of season four, when the shadow war comes to an end, it is truly some of the most epic sci-fi storytelling i mean it is like herman wooks the winds of war that mark and i love or warren remembrance giant McFarlane, apparently a bright a giant sprawling narrative of of multiple civilizations in conflict with the the shadows and it doesn't get much better and i really think if there was one if i could have one television show to remaster to like re, you'd have to redo all the effects i would love to see this get uh, the the blu-ray treatment but unlike next generation where it was able to be remastered because even the effects elements were shot on film this is all would all have to be redone and but it's still i don't on the amiga and you know it's 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 but uh, which is a shame because the ideas are much have always in that show been much better than the execution you know um although i have to say any show that has uh, d-day from animal house bruce mcgill as a starship captain gets my vote and severed dreams is a great episode there are a lot of great episodes of babylon 5 i know we were all hoping to avoid a head-on confrontation with earth that somehow we could stop this train before it went off track but this train is heading right for us and there is not a lot of time so we have only two options. We fight or we surrender. If it was just us, hey, it pays you money, it takes you chances, but it's not just us. It's a quarter million people here and billions more out there counting on us. Now, I promised the land that we would draw a line against the darkness no matter the cost. Well, now we know the cost. There's too much at stake to walk away now. If we surrender, they'll court-martial us. If we fight and lose, they'll probably kill us. They probably will at that. So the choice is yours. I say fight. 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 I think the biggest thing with Babylon Five first, by the way, it's an Animal House reunion. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. If, if, if I think if Babylon Five had been produced now for streaming in these ten episodes, because Babylon Five always had a lot of filler, and when it was good, it was great. Yeah, you yeah. know the Shadow War, um, the the more intense episodes, um, and it had an interesting ensemble. It didn't. It wasn't afraid of science fiction. J. Michael Straczynski is a you know a big sci-fi guy, so he would deal with the big sci-fi concepts. But so what you're saying it, is, they want a reboot. I, I think I would like a reboot <laughs> because I think it's a show. I think you know that suffered from you know 
a lot of friends worked on of his worked on that who probably should have been because there's some really bad performances. Uh, there's there's some you know it, it really also suffered from its budget, but it didn't suffer from its ideas. And uh, Severed Dreams is a really great episode uh, in, you know, which Sheridan has to wrestle with, you know, which side of the war is he going to fall on? And, and it, you also begin to see, um, certainly uh, in the case of Andreas Kasulis's character oh. of Jakar, going from being sort of what you think is the big bad to being an ally. And it's a wonderful evolution. And I think, you know, Kasulis for me was not only one of the best parts of Babylon 5, but also was one of my favorite recurring guest stars in Next Generation sure. as well. Um, but the, the, I mean, to me, the, the problem with Jakar was that sometimes a thing happens where an actor shows you they can give you a different color and it's just so exciting and it's it's just so enthralling that you're like, oh, I'm gonna make them give me that color again. And and it kind of it 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 led to me to this this place where Jakar actually became less interesting because they kept chasing that guy, as opposed to kind of leaving the question in place. That said, I, I kind of credit Babylon 5 for the the launch of my career because you know I was a a veteran of the Usenet flame wars of the nineties. And uh, yeah, people still talk about how bloody that was. It was bloody. <laughs> you know, that was, that was how I met Robert Wolf. That was how I met my erstwhile writing partner, Zach Stentz. Um, people yelling at each other online on Usenet about Babylon five and go figure. Uh, I mean, that's how I got my job. That's how I started. So, you know, I, I feel like severed dreams was a, a big part of, of who I am. Like, you know, whether I thought Babylon 5 was always successful or not. And I thought that Severed Dreams is actually like, it was certainly one of the more successful episodes of that show. And I agree with Mark. I think like um, Babylon 5's reach, even when it exceeded its grasp, it, at least it was reaching for something that was worth reaching for. Yeah, And they absolutely. did more with pipe and drapes for set design than any other TV show in the history of the medium. Right. I, I spent a lot of time on those sets and um I would totally agree. I mean, it was a warehouse in Santa Clarita and, you know, they had like these two giant warehouses and a lot of plywood and they looked just as cheap in person as they looked on screen. But, you know, they had heart. I mean, they had no money. So what should you do? Not do the show? I think it, it, it's it's really a testament to Joe Straczynski that because remember when it the pilot premiered as part of that warner brothers ad hoc PTEN, the primetime entertainment network yeah they didn't do that great right and the fact is they decided well star trek's doing well we're gonna give it a chance and and let's remember that pilot is not very good michael o'hare oh, and everything right um but um but it finds it, it, its way and he never lost his passion you know, I mean, even when the show was going to get canceled after the fourth season and they really, for all intents and purposes, wrapped it up. But Straczynski said it's a five year arc and they got TNT to buy it and did it for five years. <laughs> uh, you know, I admire that about Straczynski, that he never gave up. And, uh, you know, he 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 saw that vision to to the end. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it's a pipe and drape show. And I mean, even in Severed Dreams, you know, you see the uh, the bridge of the battleship and it's a bunch of flat plywood walls and stuff that's been moved around and, you know, a couple of CRT displays and you just got to go with it. It ain't the expanse. No. <laughs> yeah. So um, there you go. Now that brings us to number 29, hmm. another show 
showing up on our list for the first time. It's Amazon's The Boys. The episode is You Found Me, the first season uh, finale in which Carl Urban's butcher finally confronts Homelander and finds out his wife is still alive and has a superpowered child. You know, alert. a lot of people, sorry, first season. <laughs> You've had a time to watch it, okay? Well, you've had more time to watch Daybreak. <laughs> right daylight, now. yeah. But <laughs> yeah, daylight. Uh, you know the thing about um, uh, you know a lot of people have done you know have tried to do these kind of meta superhero. You, you know, um, some people have done it more successfully than others. I mean, Rob and I were 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 somewhat involved with a picture many years ago called The Specials, which tried to do this. But I don't think there's been a better version of um, sort of superheroes in the real world and how they would really be than the boys based on the Garth Ennis comic book series. Amazon has uh, let the boys be the boys. And this is an outrageous show that's edgy and violent and sexy and uh, with a anchored by great performance by Carl Urban. Jack Quaid is also terrific. All the superheroes are, phen are phenomenal. And uh, this episode just <laughs> opens with this sequence you would see in any Marvel or DC movie of Homelander, the erstwhile hero, showing up in Syria to take out a bunch of uh, Syrian terrorists. We find out they have their own soup who he promptly kills. And this whole thing was kind of set up by none other than Giancarlo Esposito, the face of evil on every genre TV show. Gus <laughs> <laughs> um, Gus Spring? To basically... <laughs> Dude, <laughs> and you know what? If Gus Spring had a dark saber... <laughs> to advance uh, the Vought Corporation's sinister agenda, uh, I, I think that the boys... Um, could have easily gone off the rails, but it, 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 it never does. Even the second season, which struggled initially, found its footing. But the first season, it was, it was a delightful black comedy. Uh, it's, it's, it's dark and twisted and fun. And it's my pick for number 29. There you go. Look. What am I supposed to be looking at? Oh. My radius never healed straight. I really did break every bone in my right arm. What? Stopping the bus from falling? You said the marketing guys made it up. It was me. 23-year-old, bright-eyed, ass you could bounce a quarter off of. Me. I really did want to make a difference. I really did care. I was just like you. And then I started giving pieces of myself away and I guess I gave away everything. So you know what, be, just be original. For fuck's sake. My position is already taken. Be the annoying goody two-shoes asshole that you are. One of us has to be. And that well, brings which, us to number 28. I was just going to say Turning 28? to the countdown. Deep well, Space Nine, Robert Burnett. Number 28 is sort of a, again, it's a very celebrated off-brand episode of Deep Space Nine. It's really not off-brand, but 
in it. Uh, the the Dominion War is raging. Uh, Cisco has lost a friend, and he's contemplating leaving Deep Space Nine, and uh, through uh, uh, some tech to tech to tech, something's going on with his neural pathways. He finds himself in the early fifties in nineteen fifty three America, and he is Benny Russell, an African American science fiction writer, and all of the characters from deep space nine are playing all the people that he works with and people that he knows. And, and it, it's shot like it's, it's in the fifties. It, it is, it is a, an incredible examination of, of racism and, and uh, it, it's it, deep space nine really, you, you never, even though there's a very multi-ethnic cast, they never really talked about anybody being say black in the show. They never dealt with racism because people were beyond that in the 24th century. But this episode goes back in, in great Star Trek form and, and uses the idea. I just love the fact that Benny <laughs> Benjamin Cisco is writing stories about deep space nine. And, and it, it, it's a wonderful episode, but it's also, it does a really good job. Like uh, that extraordinary being of going back in time and showing Americana American history, but through the prism of the kind of casual racism that existed for black Americans. And it's not, I wouldn't call it heavy handed. I think it's just really beautifully done. And yeah. it's a wonderful episode of, of television. And it, even though it is off brand, it's very much a Star Trek story. Well, you can't fire me. I quit to hell with you. And the hell with you! Try to stay calm, Benny. No, I'm tired of being calm. Calm never got me a damn thing. I'm warning you, Benny, if, if you don't stop this, I'm going to call the police. You go ahead, call them! Call anybody you want. They can't do anything to me. Not anymore. And nor can any of you. My human being. Damn it. You can deny me all you want, but you cannot deny Ben Zisco exists. That future, that space station, all those people, they exist in here. In my mind, I created it. And every one of you know it. You read it. It's here. You, you, you hear what I'm telling you? You can pop a story, but you cannot destroy an idea. Don't you understand? That's ancient knowledge. You cannot destroy an idea. That future, I created it, and it's real. Don't you understand? It is real. I created it, and it's real. It's real. Oh, God. <laughs> directed by avery brooks uh, it really gives the uh the secondary cast uh to a chance to shine in and out of makeup you know mm -hmm. um and it's it's a you know a really heartfelt powerful story as you said of casual racism and and a much more mature indictment of racism than something like let that be your last battlefield yes and it's um so it's 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 really one of uh, Deep Space Nine's shining moments, and it's a testament to that writing staff. And I have to say this. that the that the art department had a great deal of fun on this episode. 
uh, you can see all the sort of set dressing around the writers' offices. Yeah, uh, and uh, and John Eaves did an illustration of Deep Space Nine, but he changed the design to fit into the Rocket Age, and it's really gorgeous. And you can mm -hmm. see it in the background uh, in one of the scenes, and it's just it's so much fun on that level as well. Terrific, terrific. Uh, Ashley, you being our resident Deep Space Nine fanatic, mm -hmm. uh, anything you want to add before How we do move you on? Uh, look, this is this is one of my very favorite episodes, uh, especially for one that is. I, I wouldn't say that it's off concept or off format. It's totally inside of it. It's just that what was what was different about Deep Space Nine was that it was the first Star Trek show to really embrace the idea of serialized storytelling of you know events having consequences that were really important later, and not just hey, this is also kind of a cool sequel to an episode. And I, I think what makes this particular episode so resonant is that Benny Russell is a great character. Um, and it's it's not just an exploration you know, of racism, it's also an exploration of the creative impulse and, and how that creative impulse, it can be so close to madness, right? And what's fascinating for me looking at that episode, just beyond all the other things we've talked about is, you know, he's there's the scene where you see all the things he's written on the walls, guys. I mean, Mark, you know this. That's a writer's room. That's what it looks like. Absolutely. It looks like crazy people writing on the walls. And it is a madness. And, and his passion for it, his belief in it, it's real, he says. I mean, it just, it tears the heart out of you because he knows that it's real. He believes in it. And it's, you know, it's not something that you sort of sit back and you and you watch from the outside. You're like, oh yeah, that's that's really smart. That's really cool. No, it grabs you by the guts, man. Like he could be anybody, and and he has this thing, this idea, this beautiful thing that he believes in that he needs to be real. And it the, the pathos is just, it's off the hook. The writing in that episode is so great, Avery Brooks. You know, in the first couple of seasons, you know, he took a lot of heat because people thought that he was, you know, uh, just a little bit uh, off and kind of, you know, outside of the character. But my God, when Avery brought it, he brought it. And in Far Beyond the Stars, he doesn't just bring it. He kills it. Like, he kills it. It's one of his best performances. And I'm like, I'm like a Captain Sisko super fan. Uh, and it's it is one of my very favorite episodes for Avery Brooks. Uh, I, I can't say enough good things about it. It, it. And the other thing that's great is you don't have to know a lot about Deep Space Nine or the continuity of it to really appreciate it as a great story. You can just and that's why it's number 28 on our list of 101 greatest sci fi episodes, which brings us to number 27 dominating our list. Twilight Zone makes its return. Rob Burnett, tell us why. I don't think I've seen an episode of tv i identify with more than this episode time enough at last tells the story of burgess meredith and the character of henry bemis henry bemis is sort of a man out of time uh he wears snappy suits that look like they come from 50 years before the time they're in he is a bank teller and he is an avid reader he has books with him everywhere he wants to read morning, noon, and night, he'll even read on the job, which he frequently gets in trouble for. And he reads everything. And I was an avid reader as a kid. And I, I used to have books taken away from me in school. And you can't read that. You have to pay attention. And I, I totally identify with this character. But he goes home and he has the most browbeaten life. His wife 
I don't know why they ever got married. And his wife is just the definition of battle axe. I mean, she's horrible to him and just just awful. And there's one moment. It, it, it's one of the cruelest things I've ever seen. Henry Bemis has hidden books throughout the house. So his wife can't find them. And he finds one of his hidden books and he takes it out. And his Helen has found the book and has gone through it and X'd out every single page. So it, it, it it's unreadable. And he looks up at her and he says, I think about this all the time. Why, Helen? Why do you do these things? And it's it's I, every time something goes wrong in my mind, I just it's everybody's Helen. Why? Whatever. Why do you do these things? It's been in my mind my entire life. And then what happens is famously, he goes into the bank vault one day where he works and he goes in there at lunch and he's reading and he's in the bank vault and the nuclear apocalypse happens. And, and in the, the refrigerator, the world's destroyed and he comes out and he, in a way, at first it's kind of shocking, but then he finds the library and he spends his time in the, in the wreckage of civilization, but he's in the library and he's stacked up. Library. All what is library? And he's like, he, he just, he's so excited. He has all the time to read every book he's ever wanted to read. And as he's about to begin the rest of his life, reading all these books, the glasses on the tip of his nose slide off and break. And he can't, he cannot read. He can't see, he can't focus his eyes. And there he is, Henry Bemis, left in the wasteland of civilization after leading a, not a very distinguished life. And the final irony is he's finally got what he wanted, which was time, time enough to read all the books. I have all the time in the world, but he can't see the pages anymore condemned it, to irony in the twilight zone great dramas of the world books books all the books i'll need all the books all the books i'll ever want shelley shakespeare shaw all the books i want all the books uh, january February, March, April, May, this year, the next year, and the year after, and the year after that, and the year after that. And yes, and I'll, it is, it to me, it defines, I think when people think of the Twilight Zone, if they know the Twilight Zone, this is one of the most iconic episodes because mm -hmm. it's, it's that horrible twist of fate that happens to a character and and condemns them, even though they're they might be a good person. And, Witness uh, Mr. Henry Bemis, right? That sticks with me. I saw yeah. this episode for the first time when I was five years old. Yeah. And at five years old, that episode stuck with me. It just, it just, oh my God, it broke my heart. You can't him. believe it. I love to read too, you know? And I just like, oh, I couldn't imagine. I felt so feel so bad for him. And then you feel worse. It's just, I mean, it's feel bad television in the best way. Which and, is and why you should always it. get a second pair of glasses. Right? <laughs> well, he was at work. His second pair was at home. It was it was destroying the apocalypse. Rob, I have to correct you. I believe the actor's actual name is Meredith, Meredith Burgess. <laughs> Rocky. Um, well, we don't have time enough at last. We have time no. for one more. You know what we have time for? Why, Helen? Why number do you do these number things? 26. Number 26. 
is nope. making its debut on our countdown. It will resolve our um, second episode. This is the conclusion of our third episode, rather. Number 26, before we conclude, Robert, uh, sorry, Ashley is going to tell us about the show, which will close part three of our four-part tribute to the greatest sci-fi episodes of all time. Ashley, what is number 26? At number 26, uh, it is an, an episode of uh, a show that that was a, a sequel to an, another series that has been uh, that has been featured like on these 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 episodes earlier. Angel. Um, and while we might not have time enough at last, we do have smile time. <laughs> hey, big guy, need another cough. Afraid this last one ended up in the drink. Spike, look at you. Just turn around and walk away. You're a- Spike! You're a bloody puppet! <laughs> You're a wee little puppet man. <laughs> Ow! Hey, that's enough. Angel, what the hell happened to you? You look ridiculous. Get out of here, Spike. Oh my god, Angel, you're a- Shut up! What are you people looking at? Well? You're looking at the wee little puppet man. Yes, I'm a puppet. Doesn't mean you don't have work to do. Harmony, get my call list. Um. And Spike needs a car. You are the puppet. Fifth season episode of Angel at a time when I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of sucked. Uh, during the UPN years, Angel was finding its footing. Uh, and it was becoming a great show. A, a show as great as Buffy had ever been. It was the year that Angel took over the law firm of Wolfram and Hart. Um, it was firing on all cylinders. And it had great writers like Ben Edlin, creator of The Tick, doing an episode as effing insane as Smile Time, in which Angel is transformed into, and look, if you listen to our sister podcast, The 430 Movie, you know how much we love the goddamn Muppets. Angel is turned into a Muppet for an hour. It's kind of the best. It's so entertaining. There's a great fight with Angel as a Muppet. If you've ever wanted to see a Muppet kick ass on a vampire, Smile Time is the answer to all your dreams, all of like your questions in life. Um, it's so funny. It's so good. It's so smart. It's so cool. I think whenever you can look at a what would be a TV guide description that says, this week, Angel becomes a Muppet. You think, okay, this is going to be the worst episode of television in the history of the medium, of the cathode tube. And of course, it inverts all your expectations. It's a brilliant episode. Uh, as you say, at this point, Angel had become 
really a terrific series, one of the greats. Uh, it, again, didn't start that way, but it was given the time to grow and evolve. And by the time you get to these later seasons, particularly, you know, Angel becomes the head of an evil law firm next week on Angel. <laughs> and yet that season is so strong and so entertaining <laughs> and so dark and twisted and never more so than a smile time, which is a fantastic choice for number 26 closing out part three of our inglorious Trexperts holiday special that will bring us to part four next time where we count down the final 25 you know battlestar galactica had the final five we have it's final five right yeah yeah final five we have the final 25 and this is where it gets really difficult that basically means everyone is a cylon folks (laughs) (laughs) this is when Every episode is a complete winner. And how are we going to squeeze in all the favorites? Find out. And we want to know what you think we've missed. What would be on your top 10? You can do that by tweeting us at Inglorious Trek. Send us your list for your favorite 25. And we may even mention it on a future show. You can also visit on Facebook at Inglorious Trek Experts and send us your list there. But until then, on behalf of Ashley, Robert, Darren, and myself, we wish you good luck, happy holidays, and keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course, and we'll see you next week as the holiday countdown continues. I touch the fire and it freezes me. I die. I look into so many it and years it's ago. This isn't real, you can make me but I just want to feel. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.